Welcome to the Florida Institute for Child Welfare podcast. This series is Child Protection Caseworker Support. I am Jessica Price, your host. On each episode, we will explore topics that are relevant to child welfare professionals. We will hear directly from people who work every day to make a difference in the lives of children and families. It is our goal that this podcast is accessible, informative, and supportive. So if you know someone who works in child welfare, be sure to share this podcast with them. Today on the Florida Institute for Child Welfare podcast, we are discussing vicarious trauma, burnout, and compassion fatigue. On this episode, we will discuss the differences between these three terms, which are routinely used interchangeably. As a child welfare professional, it is important to know and identify when you are experiencing each of these so they can be properly addressed. Our guest today is April Lott, who is the president and CEO of Directions for Living. Her and her team specialize in wraparound services, including addressing homelessness, child welfare needs, and behavioral health, with the overall goal of ending the cycle of trauma. Let's get started. How are you, April? I'm good. Thank you. Could you tell us a little bit about the work you do and what brought you into child welfare? Mm-hmm. Well, as you said, I'm the president and CEO at Directions for Living, which is a community mental health, substance abuse, and child welfare agency. So we uh, have been in our community of Pinellas County, serving Pinellas County, Hillsborough County, and Pasco County for the past 38 years. Uh, we started as a Certified Community Mental Health Center, primarily serving individuals who were diagnosed with a severe persistent mental illness and didn't have access to mental health services, primarily due to lack of funding, lack of insurance, that kind of thing. And then over the years, we've grown and developed to address all of the social determinants of health within our community. So we uh, work in housing and homelessness and case management, and when provided the opportunity, when the state of Florida privatized into child welfare, we had the opportunity to bring our expertise to the table of child welfare, believing that the nexus between uh, the abuse and neglect of children uh, and the mental health, substance abuse needs of those families that were perpetrating abuse that it you know that this very cyclical nature that that we often hear about kind of this generational abuse begets abuse kind of thing and we believed as a community mental health provider who truly understood not only the impact of trauma but the diagnoses of mental illness and or addiction that bringing that expertise to the table could really do a lot to serve and protect children. I came to this work, uh, it's a very long story, so I won't go into it, but really it was around the age of 14 that I really felt like I was called to, to do this work. I didn't know that it was really going to be necessarily in the field of child protection. I just knew that it was going to be with children. Initially, I thought that that meant the role of a teacher and quickly kind of through a series of opportunities discovered uh, the role of child protective investigator and, you know, then very quickly out of college. In fact, it was my very first job out of college uh, was as a child protective investigator and 
so I spent several years in that role and then uh, moved from there to uh, working with uh, individuals who had been convicted of sex crimes against children. But in any case, so ultimately, you know, I went back to school, FSU, go Knowles, and got, you know, my master's degree uh, in social work and then became licensed and all the while working towards the role that I'm ultimately in uh, as the CEO. And I think that is a great segue into what we're going to be chatting about today. I am interested, April, in how you got into the vicarious trauma kind of sector. You do various workshops and speak on secondary trauma and vicarious trauma. And could you give us a definition and kind of what got you involved in that? Well, when I was working as a protective investigator, in my early days as a protective investigator, I had a particularly horrendous death, child death case. And early in my career, I questioned whether or not I could actually serve in the role of protective investigator. And I went to my supervisor, who I can see as clearly as I can see you as I as I tell you this story. In any case, one of the things that she said to me, she said a lot of inappropriate things to me, uh, which I won't go into. But But one of the things that she said to me is that she introduced me to this term burnout. And she literally said to me, you know, you're burned out. Now, mind you, I had been out of training and in position for probably four months. And she's already talking to me about burnout, that I was burned out. And as she she went on to say what she no doubt thought was helpful, I became very intrigued about this term burnout. And so when I went back to school for my graduate, for my master's degree, I began to study compassion fatigue. Uh, I began to look at burnout, actually, which led me to compassion fatigue. And you know all of the work that's been done at FSU relative to this topic and this subject. I mean, they really are the leaders. In any case, uh, it was at FSU that I'm trying to figure out what this term burnout means, only to learn that it's a very negative connotation. And it actually didn't describe what happened to me at all. Because by definition, burnout means that you do not like what you do and that you do not want to do what you do. And that was not what happened to me. I loved what I did. And I wanted to continue to do what I was doing. Uh, And so by definition, it was compassion fatigue. And compassion fatigue and burnout look very similar to each other with that very distinct difference, which is that if you are burned out, you really don't want to do it. You really do want to do something different. You want to go work in a different industry. You want to stop doing the work that you're doing. With compassion fatigue, you want to do this work. In fact, if you were to relocate to another part of the state, another part of the country, you probably would do this work regardless of where you end up. And that, in fact, was me. It had nothing to do with the county that I was working in or the agency that I was working for. In fact, it had to do with my repeated exposure to the trauma histories of, in this case, the children that I was serving to protect. Um, And so by definition, Compassion fatigue and or vicarious trauma, which are two different things. So there's burnout, there's compassion fatigue, and then there's vicarious trauma, 
all three are different. But vicarious trauma, by definition, really is is where you experience somebody else's trauma through them. I appreciate the distinction between those three things because even myself, I've used burnout, I've used compassion fatigue, and I've used vicarious trauma, and I think sometimes I've used them interchangeably. So I really appreciate you um, drawing a distinction between those three things. I would say that, uh, you know, I get particularly interested in correcting people who are using the terms burnout interchangeably with compassion fatigue because of the distinction that I've just made and because we have incorrectly suggested to our young child welfare professionals that perhaps this isn't the job for them when that is nothing could be further from the truth. And when my supervisor suggested that to me very early in my career, now 35 or more years ago, if I had taken her recommendation, right, where would I be today? And the fact of the matter is, is that we have hundreds of child welfare professionals who like what they do and who want to do what they do, but are nonetheless being negatively impacted by this repeated exposure to somebody else's trauma. And so our solution just needs to be different. It is not, we can't afford to lose any one of our child welfare professionals who are willing and able to do this work. We can't afford to lose one. In fact, we need each of them to bring 10 more to the table, right? So we have to be very very uh, intentional in how we speak about these issues so that we don't mislead and or suggest to our to our young or even our advanced child welfare professionals that it's time to do something different. So April, I'm sitting here thinking about my own experience as well. And I know you mentioned that you had that horrific case. And I remember when I was in the field, I had cases that really impacted me. And it wasn't really talked about a lot. And I'm curious if supervisors and leadership, are they being trained on how to identify vicarious trauma? I know you had a supervisor that, as you said, didn't say the most appropriate things. Um, From your lay of the land, are supervisors and leadership being trained to better assess that with their staff? I don't think so. I really don't. If If I'm being candid, I believe that we now have a better grasp on the impact of trauma, primarily due to the heavily dispersed research on adverse childhood experiences, and there has been uh, a plethora of trainings at frontline staff levels on ACEs and on the impact of trauma. But I don't think that we're doing as good of a job specifically training supervisors on how to prevent compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma, how to address it when they see it, how to assist their staff with healing and or treating those dynamics. I don't think that we're doing as good a job as we as we could. And um, I also wanted to talk about, um, like I mentioned, a case that I had as a PI, and it was a three-year-old, and he was uh, lying on the floor watching television, and the TV was mounted. And I was called because the TV fell on top of him, and he had a traumatic brain injury. And after I did that case, I called basically everyone in my family, 
asking them, are their TVs mounted correctly? So I started to obsess over, is your TV mounted correctly? I asked my sister, don't let your, my, I didn't want my nieces to watch TV on the floor. So even then I didn't put a name to it, but there was obviously some type of traumatic response. And so I wanted to ask you, what advice do you have to the caseworkers and case managers that are listening when you do have these responses and you don't really know what to do with it? How do you approach your supervisor? Like, what do you do with mm-hmm. that? What are the indications? You know, that I honestly believe that first and foremost, that supervisors should during regular supervision should be having those conversations. In other words, it's already planned. The fact of the matter is, is that every single case manager and every single child protective investigator has currently had a hard, difficult case that has in fact probably impacted them similarly to what you've described. So we should just on a routine, regular basis, we should be saying to our, to our, our staff in supervision, talk to me about, you know, the worst case that you have right now. Talk to me about what's happening, you know, how you're, how you're thinking, how you're feeling, all that kind of stuff. You know, if it becomes obsessive, right, then, you know, we might want to, to have a different, a different conversation, but certainly we want supervisors, in my opinion, to be sharing with staff that this is likely to happen. And when it does, I want you to tell me because it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. It means that now's your time and we need to address it. No, that makes sense. It's, it's almost normalizing yes. these, um, these things that are going to occur. And if it goes um, across the threshold of this is a normal response, but now let's talk about it. If, like you said, it becomes obsessive or you can't, um, it's it's almost making your work dysfunctional in some ways. Then we can chat about that. And I love that you said, when I said, what can a case manager do when they're experiencing it? But then you said there should already be ongoing dialogue in your supervisory meetings, even in your team meetings. This should be a part of your conversation. So I'm hoping that if you're listening, that is already a part of your relationship with your supervisor so that there isn't any fear of how to talk about this. It's a normalized way to discuss it. So I appreciate you saying that. So I know this might be leading into my next question because I wanted to ask you, what is a trauma-informed workplace? And does that include, like you just said, this constant kind of feedback loop from your supervisors? You know, a trauma-informed workplace, interestingly enough, when we talk about trauma-informed agencies or a trauma-informed workplace, it's usually through the lens of the client, a client-facing experience. We don't typically talk about a trauma-informed workplace through the lens of a staff member. And so I think that shift is a shift that needs, is the next phase, is the next step that we need to be focusing on as as an industry. Uh, So a trauma-informed workplace currently is, you know, workplaces that are sensitive to and knowledgeable about the impact of trauma on the clients that they serve, you know, on the, certainly, I would say, on the staff, that the facility has been set up, that it's not re-traumatizing, it's not a frustrating place to navigate, uh, that policies and procedures are sensitive to trauma but usually like I said it's it, the, the 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 lens that a, a trauma-informed workplace is looking through is 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 about the client as opposed to about the staff does that make sense yeah so you know I think the next phase the next step that we need to take as a as an industry is how do we create environments that are trauma uh, informed and trauma sensitive to our staff 
that we begin to recognize and appreciate that our staff come to us with their own adverse childhood experiences. Uh, sometimes they come to us with an excessive amount of adverse childhood experiences, and then which then makes them far more susceptible. Even if your A score is a zero, right, you've had no childhood adversity, you are still at risk of compassion fatigue, vicarious trauma, and burnout. Uh, but if your score is a one, a two, an eight, a 10, the higher your score, the more susceptible you are to compassion fatigue, vicarious trauma, and burnout. So it really is, I think, important for us to begin to understand that the way we, the way we train our staff, the way we ensure their uh, success, like the, the amount of training that we allow them to do, the amount of practice we allow them to do, the amount of times we allow them to error and still be in a safe environment. In other words, every error doesn't result in some kind of disciplinary action or termination. You know, all of those things would need to be included in a, in my opinion, in a trauma-informed or a trauma-sensitive workplace no, that's really fascinating, and I, I'm glad you made a distinction between what a trauma-informed workplace is. Is it a lens of a client, or is it a lens of the caseworker or frontline staff? So when you talked about the, they're more susceptible to certain things, that, that's kind of fascinating to me because it's almost as if we, we need to transform our workplaces into trauma-informed because a lot of our caseworkers are coming from that experience. So I'm glad you brought that up. And I hope that organizations will start moving toward that. It could be this concurrent type of um, lens. We're not only going to be mindful of the trauma that our clients are facing, but also the trauma that might be right in front of us in our units, in our cubicles, in our offices. I think what ACE taught us, uh, what ACE certainly taught me, is that there isn't an us and them, right? What ACE has taught us, if we really understand ACE, what it's taught us is that it is all of us. Um, it is all of us who have experienced childhood or been exposed to childhood adversity. And in fact, the ACE study, you know, says, revealed that 70% of us have at least one ACE in our childhood and that 80% of those have at least two, right? And then it goes from there. And so I think if we begin to to look at our workforce through that same lens of, and I don't mean to say that we want to therapeutize all of our staff, but to begin to understand that it is all of us, right? To assume that the people we are caring for are somehow different than us begins to do this us and them thing. And, you know, I think that's where we lose sight of how we best take care of staff. I always want to say that the the opposite or the antidote to vicarious trauma, the antidote to compassion fatigue is in fact staff satisfaction. So the more we can focus on staff satisfaction, the the less likely our workforce will turn over, the less likely our workforce will be impacted by burnout, compassion fatigue, or vicarious trauma. Interesting. And this might be, you might have just answered the question I was going to ask because, so my question for you is, uh, 
is vicarious trauma preventable? And I know you just mentioned the staff satisfaction. Can you talk a little bit about, is this something, I know you said earlier, it's going to happen, but how can we in some ways prevent it or um, get ahead of it? I think getting ahead of it is is probable, is likely that we could do. I don't know that we can prevent it, quite frankly. I, I think that some level of vicarious trauma is likely to happen to every professional who has a repeated exposure to somebody else's trauma. So if, if we could limit that, which by definition, right, that's what these case managers and protective investigators are doing. So by definition, we can't we can't limit and or eliminate that. So I think some level of vicarious trauma is likely to happen at, at some point during someone's career, and it might even happen a low, at a low level throughout their entire career. Um, but I do think that we can stop it from growing and stop it from becoming something that leads to or contributes to the poor performance of a case manager or the turnover of case manager. And and it really is all the things that we've already talked about. Probably the only thing that I haven't said yet is that there really is a personal, professional responsibility to this topic. So not everything can be done from the agency, from the supervisor, from the whatever. You know, there is a personal professional responsibility of all of the staff to develop a self-care plan to make sure that they're, you know, doing what they can in spite of or despite their work to take care of themselves. You know, that they're, you know, that like you have a bottle of water in front of you, right? That people are hydrating, that they are eating healthy to the extent that they can, that they're limiting the amount of sugar and or, you know, carbohydrates that they're, that they're eating, that they are, you know, they have an exercise plan, that they have a plan for good, healthy relationships. They have a plan for fun, you know, that they plan for their day off. I mean, some of the things that just seem so obvious are not routinely being done. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I recall, again, when I was in the field, I had a colleague that she would take a day off biweekly. She would say, I'm, I'm taking the day off. And I would talk to a close colleague of mine and say, can you believe that? Why don't we do that? Like, oh. look, well, I could say, well, I would say, why don't we do that? Like, we're killing ourselves trying to be here every single day. But that was her self-care. She was saying, biweekly, I'm taking a day off. I mean, if you have PTO, why not? So it's, it's those types of things. So I, I, I know her still today, and I tell her, you were such an example of how to say this job is going to be tough, but I'm going to choose me one day every two weeks. So that's an option for people if they have the support from their, their leadership. But I think that what you said makes a lot of sense. We can't put the onus completely on the organization. We should take some of that responsibility as well. Mm-hmm. Am I correct in saying that, because um, I used to say that I burn out, But now that you've talked about this, I do want to give the listeners another way to kind of frame it and make it more accurate. So is it is it fair to say you could experience vicarious trauma and then that leads into compassion fatigue? And if it's not managed well, you could end up burnout. Mm -hmm. Is that that basically accurate? Yeah, that would be the trajectory, I would say, Uh, you know, that exactly the way you the way you said it. Because burnout is when you're essentially done with the work. You don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. You don't want to do it anymore. You don't like it. 
you would rather do anything but what you're what you're doing. Most people, most child welfare professionals, if you talk to them, my experience has been literally across the country. When I ask the question, how many of you like what you do? 99% raise their hand. When I ask them, how many of you want to do what you do? 99% of them raise their hand. I mean, literally, they're in most of these training places, you know, there's hundreds of people, one or two people are like, I'm done, right? 99% of them are like, this is what I want to do, but it's hurting me, right? It has impacted me. And so it is the, it's hurting me, it's impacted me piece that we want to focus on and work on while continuing to say, we can't lose even one of you who's willing to do this work. Our children need every one of us. Right, right. Thank you, April. And thank you all for listening in. I really appreciate um, this conversation. Um, Is there anything else you want to kind of add as we sum up, April, to the listeners? I think just, you know, thank you for for doing this work and for hanging in there and, you know, keeping the faith that we are changing lives and making a difference in, in families. Thank you again to our guest. Such a great discussion about better understanding the trauma that we all face and how to manage compassion fatigue and burnout. If you are a child welfare professional, I end every podcast with a heartfelt thank you. We appreciate your commitment to this work, and we hope the podcast was helpful. To learn more about the Florida Institute for Child Welfare and to read more about our guests, visit www.ficw.fsu.edu. I want to acknowledge Aaron Kuja, our podcast engineer, and Mariana Tutwiler, the producer of this series. Until next time, I am Jessica Price, and we are strengthening child protection by providing caseworker support.